Happy Friday, developers. Today is July 28th, 2023, and welcome back to our Roundup episode where you can catch up on the episodes you missed and get a quick rundown of the past two weeks from Pod Rocket. So let's get started. First up, we welcomed on CSS evangelist Kevin Powell to talk about how CSS has been shaping up mid-2023. In this clip, our host Tejas asked why the is selector is such a game changer for CSS. As you mentioned the is selector, the has selector and container queries, and you mentioned the is selector being this like game changer, this very powerful primitive. I'm curious if for the listeners, you could elaborate a little bit on, on the is selector, what it is, why it's such a big deal, and then maybe after you're done with that, we can go to the has and container queries. Mm-hmm. So is one of those things that a lot of people, even when I show it or talk about it, they're like, oh, I don't really see like the importance of it. And I think it doesn't change that much in a sense, just because it at its core, it doesn't really enable new things. It's just, it can be a more concise way of writing your CSS. And for, if you're not familiar with it, basically it's, you can do, it's a pseudo class. So you, you do a single colon is, and then open the parentheses, and then you can chain your selectors in there. So just like before we could have comma separated selectors, you're putting your comma separated, separated selectors inside the is function. And the, it, you can just make much more concise things. So you could say is h1, h2, h3, and then a space after that and put an A. So it's any link that's inside your h1, h2, h3. And if you go on the MDM and you look up is, they actually have this one example that's, I think, probably 100 lines of these this 100 line selector. It's like a grouping of selectors that they bring down to a four line selector using is. So it lets us write much more concise CSS. So it's a little bit of a better experience in a sense. But it's not, it, it didn't enable anything from an authoring point of view that we couldn't do before. It just made things a little bit easier. But from what I understand, it's the underlying technology or the underlying whatever engineering that went in to make that possible is what's enabled other things and opened other doors. And I hope I'm not misspeaking on that one because that's something I'm remembering off the top of my head. So it could be it was something else, but I think it was, I think it was part of at least what's opening the doors for some of these things that are on the way. Would it be fair to say that the is selector is somewhat syntax trigger? It could be considered a little bit, definitely. And you do have to be careful with it because one nice thing with it versus just having like your comma separated list of selectors is it fails gracefully. So if you have a comma separated list of selectors and one of the selectors is invalid, which is weird to have an invalid selector, but it can potentially crop up just through a typo or something, it invalidates the entire rule. So like all of them go out. Whereas if it's in is, it won't invalidate. It just doesn't select that one thing that doesn't work. And the other thing with it is the specificity is a little bit different because it's one single selector instead of being a whole bunch of selectors. So it takes the highest it takes the specificity of the highest selector inside of the parentheses. So you could, in a way, use it to like boost specificity just by putting an ID selector in there. I wouldn't really recommend this, but say you needed to boost specificity for something because you just need to. There's hacky ways of doing it, and this is probably a nicer hacky way instead of doubling up a class just for the sake of it. And it could be, a, it, the ID doesn't actually have to exist. You could just put ID example. And it just by being in there, that selector now has that specificity. But it's also, if you don't know that and you have an ID selector in there, you might have increased the specificity without realizing it for other things you're trying to select. And just really quickly on that note, there's also the where selector. And where is exactly the same thing as is, but it has no specificity whatsoever. Or anything that's within the parentheses doesn't count towards specificity. So you can make zero specificity selectors, which if you're just doing like a quick reset off the top of your page, I think 
one of the resets actually, or not normalize, but is it sanitized? The one that's an opinionated version of normalize. I think they use where for everything now. And there's different things you can do just to be like, oh, I need this not to have any specificity. That can be really helpful at times. Next, we welcomed on Alexandra Sikora, open source engineer at the Guild, who came on to talk about how the performance of TypeScript impacts how developers work with it. You frame your talk talking about why we use TypeScript and its utility. I think a lot of devs probably have a pretty good handle on like the general justification for using it. But can you kind of tell us about like the how performance plays into TypeScript, like how we should think about TypeScript's impact on our running code? Yes. So usually when we're thinking about performance, we think about the end user performance, like how fast things are for our clients, how fast our applications are when we open them in the browser. And I feel like we don't talk that often about the development performance, like how fast we can develop features, how fast we can deliver value for the clients. And I had this metaphor in my talk about TypeScript that it's kind of like being a Formula One driver when the runtime performance is like when you're actually on the track and when you are driving, you're on the track. This is like the runtime performance, like how fast you can go. But then you're at the pit stop. They are changing your tires. They are getting you ready for the next part of the race. And this is what I compare to the development performance, like our tooling performance, because we have to be like up to speed. Like our tooling should slow us down. We shouldn't spend like half an hour on the pit stop because that would kind of break the point of doing the race. This is, I think, why it's important because every time you have to wait for your compiler to compile the code or for your editor to give you the information about the types, it can be quite annoying if that's slow. Did you ever have those moments when, you know, your VS code or your other editor crashed? during the development and you had to restart it. Yeah, yeah, it's been a while, but yes, I have. I guess, is there anything devs can do to, or should be keeping in mind, I guess, to that end to make their kind of dev experience easier when using TypeScript? Any pitfalls, anything to watch out for? Yeah, so when I was like researching this topic, I found some ways to like debug the performance. First thing I wanted to say that TypeScript team did a lot of really amazing work to to make the TypeScript compiler fast. Like it's much better than it used to be like a few years ago. We're not starting from like a bad position. It's all the uh, debugging or optimization stuff that we can learn about. It's not like we will use them on a daily basis because as you said, it's been a while since you had your editor crashing when you when writing code because TypeScript actually got much, much better. But it's there are those rare moments when it is really annoying, when something is really slowing you down, when your compiler crashes, when your editor takes forever. And this is when this knowledge, having this knowledge pays off. And I think this is, even if it happens to you, you like once a year, it's still worth knowing how to proceed when that happens. And finally, we welcomed on Yuna Kravitz and Adam Argyle to talk about the next generation of responsive design. So you start off the talk by saying that people should throw out all of their current assumptions about responsive design. What kind of misconceptions have you encountered that you would say are no longer things that people need to be concerned with? 
I think it's the framing of no longer need to be concerned with is kind of funny because I think that we have more things that we can be concerned with than ever. But I feel like when people talk about responsive design, at least right now, it's usually how do we adapt this to different screen sizes? How do we adapt this from desktop to mobile? That's really one of the first huge switches in responsive design. We're at a place in time now where we're at this second evolution of responsive design where we have these new APIs, these new tools, these new capabilities, where it's no longer just about screen size. We can actually get information about the viewport, the information about device capabilities, and use those and progressively enhance user experiences that way. We can be responsive to the user's own preferences. That's a whole nother vector of being responsive. And we can be responsive to the logical components that live inside of the component, the interface itself. So we have all of these new vectors. And the idea of the talk was to stop thinking about responsive design as being limited to screen sizes and to really start thinking about these new axes for responsive design. Getting out of the page. So it's still okay to work as pages, but to think about more in your component, like the way that your artboard is inside of Figma, that's actually how we can build now. That component can know if its artboard is medium large or small, and you can adapt to it. You can adapt to other external things, just like in Figma, you've got these different modes and these variables that are changing colors and changing spacings inside of your artboard. We have the same things too. So it's allowing you to like really focus in on that, that smaller focus point. Instead of thinking about the page, we're thinking about the component and just what does it need and where is it trying to be squeezed into? Is it being squeezed into somewhere or is it some new relaxed space? And these concepts of compact and non-compact don't have anything to do with the viewport. It has to do with this component in its moment, in this time, with this user on their device. And it's all of these things rolled into this new responsive experience that we can build. Okay, so it's less about what can we stop worrying about and more of how we can start to use some of the new features and roll them all together into a better UX experience. Yes, that's definitely a part of it. Uh, also, like Adam mentioned, now we can think component first. So when we had this first evolution of responsive design with different screen sizes, the change there was people started thinking mobile first. They started thinking, how do I start with the baseline of this experience and expand? Now people can think component first. So instead of the mobile layout and all the components on that page, we can take a look at every individual piece of that page. And that solves the question of how do I go from point A to point B when you're designing with the component in mind? So wherever you put that component on your page, it's a new paradigm. It's a new way of thinking about responsive design, which is why we called it the future responsive design, the new responsive. This second generation of responsive design thinking is now upon us. And that's it for today. Friday, July 28th. You can check out the full episodes linked in our show notes or on our feed. And if you like what you hear, follow PodRocket for more great web development content. See you at the next roundup. This episode was brought to you by LogRocket. Try it for free at logrocket.com.